Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. Andrea, thanks very much. Uh, Let me encourage you to leave uh, your Bibles open to that page 1174. And indeed, you might find it useful to dig out um, the handout, uh, the sermon outline there as well that you were given on the way in. Now, I wonder if you've ever played one of those uh, word association games. I can't say I particularly enjoy them, but uh, I'm going to uh, ask you to uh, join in with me just for a moment. You know how they go. When somebody says a word, you have to say back the first thing that comes into your mind. I'm not going to do that really embarrassing thing of expecting you to say it back Um, But just in your mind, as I say some words, uh, see what the first thing is that comes into your mind. If you really don't want to play along, just uh, drop off for a while and I'll tell you when to come back. Um, So here's the first word, wizard. Got it? Here's the next word, plague. Mouse. Church. They're not related or anything. How do you get on? Uh, Wizard. I thought Oz. You might have thought Harry Potter. Plague. Bubonic or death. Something happy like that. Uh, Mouse, Mickey, trap, death, I don't know, and church. My guess is that most people think of a building with a spire, perhaps. If you come here regularly, you might have thought of this building. Perhaps um, it's one of those kind of visual images that popped into your head when I said church. Now, between now and Easter, as uh, Tamar was saying earlier, we're going to think about church as the Bible thinks about it. And I can tell you now that we won't be thinking much about buildings. Uh, Years ago, when I was a curate, my vicar was in the church building midweek, 
and somebody wandered into the church to uh, look around. And the vicar introduced himself and the visitor said, you have an amazing church. And the vicar replied, yes, they are. And if you come along on Sunday, you'll meet them. He said his comment led to a great conversation about how in the Bible, the church is the people, not a building. In fact, in the Bible, the church is a gathering of God's people uh, gathered to listen to God's word. But today, of course, the the word church is so closely associated with a building that some people I know are trying to shock in order to make the point that church is not the building. I think of an Australian who insists on calling any church building a rain shelter, and he calls cathedrals glorified and expensive rain shelters. When my brother worked for a church that met in a building with a spire, he called it the pointy building. We'll be meeting at the pointy building this coming Sunday, he'd say. Now, frankly, because it's so ingrained in our culture and so ingrained in our language, I think all attempts for us to get to change this, to call this building anything other than church, are absolutely doomed. But even if our language doesn't change over the next few weeks, I'd love our thinking to change significantly so that if ever we play that word association game and somebody says church, we think people. Or better, the people of God gathered around God's word. That would make us kind of boring geeks if we said that at one of those games. But still, that's what we would love you to do, what I'd love to come into my mind. Now, this really is important. It's not just a matter of semantics or worse, pedantic. It matters because how we think about something affects how we respond to it. If we think the church is a building, we'll be quite content to come here on a Sunday and leave again without talking to anyone else. And that, of course, is the way many people treat the Sunday activity they call going to church. But if church is a gathering of people, it would be odd not to talk and engage with the others that you've met with. Indeed, if you don't talk to the people in the building, you've not done church, have you? You've just gone to a building. If in our mind the church is like a community centre or a religious club, then I will respond to the church like a community centre or a, a sports club. I'll go there when I want to, and when I don't need it, I'll not bother. And that is how some people approach the church. See, getting our understanding right will affect our actions. So over the next few weeks, we're going to consider what the church is. And we begin this week by learning that the church is a gathering of people united in Christ. And when I understand that, I'll begin to grasp that in the church, we'll experience something that we cannot find anywhere else in the world i hope you still got ephesians chapter 2 open in front of you page 1174 and here's our first heading uh, that is on the handout uh, in the world disunity now that frankly is a bit weak I i was the one who made up that heading but it is a bit weak because we don't just live in a world that has no unity we live in a world of hatred and division and suspicion And we see that clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 11, we're introduced to two groups of people who are in huge conflict, Jew and Gentile. The verse 11, circumcised and the uncircumcised. A Gentile, the uncircumcised, simply everyone who isn't a Jew. And here, Jew and Gentile are people who at best were hugely suspicious of each other and at worst hated each other. Now, to try and grasp the strength of the enmity between Jew and Gentile, think of the Cold War and the conflict between Soviet Russia and the USA. Or think back to the troubles in Northern Ireland between Republican and Loyalists. 
Or think of the Rwandan genocide as a result of the hatred between Hutu and Tutsi. Or in former Yugoslavia between Serbs and Croats. Or think today of the tension between North and South Korea. Or Russia and Ukraine. Or Shiite and Sunni Muslims. I mention so many examples for two reasons. First, in the hope that one of those conflicts might just help us to grasp the strength of the animosity and hatred between Jew and Gentile, because only when we get that will we understand the power of Christ in the church. And the second reason I mention all those conflicts is to demonstrate that the issue we have here is not a purely Jew-Gentile issue. There is an endemic problem at the heart of the human race and in the hearts of every individual, we are deeply suspicious of people who aren't like us. Can we be honest this morning? If we see a man with olive skin and a very full black beard wearing clothes from an Arab culture, most of us will be immediately wary and untrusting of that man. Is that not true? When we see a homeless guy on the street sitting with a polystyrene cup in front of him and asking everyone who passes by for loose change, most of us will immediately draw a derogatory conclusion about that man without knowing anything about him or his circumstances. Is that not true? We are suspicious of and derisory towards people who are not like us. And living in a salubrious, wealthy, leafy suburb, that means we are suspicious of people who have less than us or who don't fit in with what we believe to be normal social conventions of lifestyle and dress and basic manners. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we don't really want to have anything to do with people like that. We certainly don't want to spend good quality time with them. This temptation, you see, then, to segregate and withdraw from people we don't like starts very early in life, doesn't it? It happens in the school playground. Kids call other kids' names, labelling them because of the clothes they wear or the area they live in or the accent they have. And in the playground, along with the name-calling, there is the deliberate exclusion of others. So a child is left out in the cold and no one wants to play with them and it is agony for them. And then there's other children who long to be part of the in-crowd and they're not cool enough and they feel left out, and it really hurts. The school playground is a very cruel place. But the name-calling and the segregation doesn't stop once we leave school. It happens in adult life. In middle-class Britain, it's more subtle, but it's here. We're far too polite to call people names to their faces, but we label people in our minds... And the exclusion is done very cleverly and subtly. We make our clubs exclusive by setting high prices so that people from the lower social group can't join in, or having conditions around standards of education or an ability that keeps certain people out. Now, I mention this name-calling and it's this exclusion because it was going on between Jew and Gentile. Verse 11, the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. That means unacceptable to us, basically. And in verse 12, there's exclusion. The Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel just because they were Gentile. And alongside the name-calling and exclusion, barriers are put up. Verse 14, a barrier, a dividing wall. 
Well, there have been some huge barriers constructed through history. The Berlin Wall separating East from West. The heavily fortified fence between North and South Korea. Oh, but it doesn't have to be a physical wall. We erect social barriers that keep people out and political barriers that enable us to write people off. And again, it's not just there between nations or the wider community, we do it too. We erect fences or plant conifer trees that grow very high in order to keep prying neighbours off our land. One way and another, we are brilliant at putting up barriers, not letting people in, not letting them into our lives, freezing them out. And because of all this division and suspicion and the hatred of people who are not like us, humanity finds it extraordinarily difficult to keep the peace. You don't need me to tell you that. Every week the news is dominated by war and conflict and disputes and aggro. So to keep the peace, we need law enforcement agencies. Do you hear the irony? In order to keep the peace, we have to use force, a police force, the UN peacekeeping force. Isn't it bizarre? The only way we can get peace between us, whether it's between nations or in a society or as individuals, because we are hostile towards people who aren't like us. And so in the world, there is disunity, division, conflict, hatred, suspicion, and sometimes full-blown war. It is the history of the human race, and we seem powerless to do anything about it. But God is doing something about it. And he's doing it in the church, not in a building, but in a people. And that's what this second half of Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. In Christ, God is creating a new community. And uh, if you turn over the page, the second heading on the handout is In Christ, Unity. Uh, In verses 11 to 22, we discover that God is making a new community of people who are united in Christ. Now, these verses are brilliantly explained in this little book by Graham Bynum, God's New Community. In fact, uh, you may not want to buy that other book this week, but I would encourage you to buy this one. It is great. And he explains it brilliantly in a diagram, which I've reproduced on the handout. Diagram one shows how Jew and Gentile are separate from each other with a wall of hostility dividing them, indicated by that, uh, that uh, solid line between them. And not only are the Gentiles enemies with Jews, they are also separate from God, shown by the line between the Gentiles and God. The Jews, on the other hand, in that first uh, diagram, were shown to have a special relationship with God, shown by the dotted line. But in Christ... That all changes, diagram two. Verse 13 in the Bible, in Christ, the Gentiles who were far away from God have been brought into relationship with God through the blood of Christ. So in the second diagram, the line is removed between Gentile and God. That, of course, is the glorious gospel we've been singing about and that we enjoy. Through the wonderful death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be united to our God. Isn't that glorious? But that's not all. And actually, I think this is something that evangelicals need to uh, major on more. We're very good on that relationship with God. But verse 14, Christ destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. In Christ, there's nothing between two groups who once hated each other. So do you see that solid line has gone in the second diagram between 
Gentile and Jew. I remember seeing this very vividly when I went to, to a conference in, in Jerusalem. A Jewish man who'd become a Christian and a former member of the PLO had become, uh, who'd become a Christian shared a platform and spoke of their friendship and their love for one another. Even though they had both actually, before they became Christians, joined the, uh, the opposing uh, sides in the army and had killed uh, people of the opposite uh, group. It was quite remarkable to see them standing there with genuine, real, deep love for one another. So now in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, as well as being united to God, are united to each other. And end of verse 15, they are at peace with one another. You see, you no longer need a force to keep the peace. God, if you like, is that force that brings people together in peace. That's the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not actually the end of it. Verse 15 goes even further. Look halfway through verse 15, and this is illustrated in the third diagram. Verse 15, God's purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Do you see it illustrated in in the third diagram? In Christ, God is creating one new community, not just two groups of people that can get on, but one new people united in Christ. That is the church. That is what is so spectacular about the church that you won't find anywhere else in the world. Even if there's some kind of unity in the world, it's not that we are now completely united in a new community. The church is a place where barriers are removed. We don't need a shaky peace maintained through rules or by a peacekeeping force because we're in Christ. It is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God that brings people together who would never have anything in common because in Christ we're no longer defined by our race or colour or social background, or education, or wealth, or political outlook, or anything. We are Christians in Christ, and that unites us. I remember the first time I experienced this as a new Christian. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I was working uh, in in the newspaper industry, and I worked in Bedford, and uh, at lunchtimes, I often used to walk into into the town centre. I remember wandering into a shop and seeing a shop assistant wearing a fish lapel badge, And I asked him, are you a Christian? And sure enough, he was. And we just got chatting. And after 10 minutes or so, I walked out of the shop and I felt a bond with that man who I'd never seen before and as far as I know, had never seen since. I felt a bond because we were united in Christ. And I have had and enjoyed that same experience many times as I've met Christians. Christians from different backgrounds and different cultures. I've, I've bumped into them at conferences and, and in different situations and I've felt instantly at one with them. That's what God is doing in the church. You can't find it anywhere else. We are God's new community. The church is a group of people united in Christ. And this chapter, chapter two, ends with three pictures of what we are in Christ. Again, I've lifted them, listed them on the, uh, on the handout. 
You see, we are fellow citizens, verse 19. No longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens. Uh, Do you know that feeling when you meet a Brit abroad and you feel united to them? I I, I do know there are many times when you meet a Brit abroad and they're doing such stupid things you don't want to be united to them at all. But you know that thing when you're abroad and you haven't seen a Brit for a while and then you you meet another British person, you feel united because you share a passport. Well, look, in Christ there is a greater bond than any earthly citizenship. We are fellow citizens of the heavenly city. Now, the second picture is uh, family. End of verse 19, we are members of God's household. One family. Think of the strength of your loyalty to your own flesh and blood, to your parents, your spouse, your children and grandchildren. In Christ, there is an even greater bond than any earthly family. We share the same heavenly father. We're united as citizens, as family, and third, the temple. Verse 20. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Oh, this was the whole point of the, uh, the children's song that we rang, uh, sang earlier. It isn't just a children's song. It's brilliant for the words. Great for us to learn. Now, we may not get this and see how brilliant this is, but um, the Jews would have seen it immediately, and they should have been very excited about it. But we're not steeped in the Old Testament, so we might not see the importance of the temple as they would have seen it. So focus, focus with me on that last phrase in verse 22. In Christ, we're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. See, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God was present. The temple was the place where men and women would go to meet God. So do you see what this is saying? The Holy Spirit, God, is present with a Christian community. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in a building anymore, not in a physical temple in Jerusalem, but among God's people, Christian people among those who are united in Christ. This makes the gathering of God's people under his word a most spectacular event. God is present. His spirit is with us. And if people want to meet God and experience his presence, they can do it here. Not in the building during the week when the place is empty, but here as we, God's people, meet in Christ to gather around his word The Holy Spirit dwells here now. How exciting is that? It's exciting, but it's also challenging because it means that we, the church, the people of God, are to be a living example of that most spectacular experience. So the church is to be a place where there is no racial, ethnic or social barrier. In the church, there is to be no joining fee, no standard you have to reach to be allowed in. No test of ability, no background checks necessary, no educational standard to reach. This gathering is like no other. And actually, others see it. Someone who was invited here over Christmas for the first time was astonishing what he experienced, was astonished by what he experienced. He said that he was amazed that people of different ages and backgrounds were gathering together. 
He said, this is a remarkable, there is a remarkable diversity here that I don't see anywhere else in the city. And this man has significant civic responsibilities in this city. He saw something here that he sees nowhere else because it can't be seen anywhere else. I've met others who've been blown away by it. A friend, I think a friend of mine who came on a Sunday evening, amazed that people of all ages were here. These friends couldn't work it out. It's the power of the gospel. People who wouldn't have reason to be together are united in Christ. People of all ages, of different nationalities, different backgrounds. So in this book, Graham Bynan writes these words. Ideally, we want to see a multi-age, multi-class, multi-racial, multi-background type of church. The more differences that are represented, the more unity of the gospel shines out. But he realistically and helpfully adds, immediately after saying those words, of course, a church can do no more than reflect the neighbourhood it's located in. And that is really important to bring into the discussion. We are what we are, partly because of the area we live in. We don't need to beat ourselves up because we don't have every possible ethnic diversity here represented because some people will never travel here. They don't need to. They've got a church community near them. But we must be sure that we don't do anything to segregate people. Not that we would do that physically, of course, but we must make sure we don't do anything to make sure that people don't feel as if they belong when they walk in. And incidentally, that's why we don't have youth church or student church or families church or a service for old people because we want our gatherings to reflect this glorious, supernatural, unifying work of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, as the vicar here, it would be a lot easier to run services for separate peoples. It is hard to keep everyone happy. Some would like more hymns, other no hymns. Some would like more liturgy, others no liturgy. I could spend ages listing all the preferences because I've heard them in the last 10 years many times. But the great thing about families is that they live with each other's differences. And the great things about really good families is that they even enjoy each other's differences. Let me tell you how it used to be in our family at Christmas. I say used to be because my parents have now died, uh, so it's not the same as it used to be. But let me tell you how it used to be on Christmas Day. Grandma and Grandad loved to watch the Queen's speech. The children didn't like it much. The children loved unwrapping the presents. We all enjoyed that, but the children enjoyed it most of all. Caroline and I loved the Boxing Day walk. The children really didn't like that. But we all did it together and enjoyed doing each part together, partly by looking at how much the other was enjoying it. So when we were watching the Queen's speech, I would say to the children, just look at Grandma and Grandad's face. They're loving it. That's how it needs to be in the church meeting, doesn't it? When we sing the song that is not my cup of tea, I need to sing it anyway. And if I really don't like it, just look at the looks on the faces of the people who are enjoying it and enjoy it because they're enjoying it. That's real family, isn't it? So we work out our unity as a family united in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. But this unity is so much more than our gathering on a Sunday. 
It should be demonstrated in our small groups and, frankly, in the way we share our lives together way beyond Sundays, right through the week. And as we draw to a close, because my time has nearly gone, see how Paul begins to work it out in chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. Chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is the work of the Holy Spirit. To break unity is a denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is a very serious thing. The Holy Spirit brings unity in the church because we are brought in Christ, who is our unity. But chapter 4, verse 3, we must make every effort to keep this unity. And chapter 4, verse 2 describes the kind of characteristics and attitudes we should develop to live out this unity. The Holy Spirit will enable us to do this, to become humble and gentle and patient and ready to bear with one another. That's how we're to live. And when we do that, others look on and they see something in the church that they cannot see anywhere else in the world. A genuine supernatural unity among a diverse group of people. Well, look, my time really has gone. So in our small groups, as we meet together over these next couple of weeks, these are the things we need to be thinking about and working out together. How can we demonstrate this unity among us, not just on a Sunday, but right through our lives throughout the week? How can we be sharing these kind of forgiving, humble, gracious lives The church then is not a building. It's far more dynamic than bricks and mortar. It's a gathering of people united in Christ, gathered around God's word. A people supernaturally brought together into a new community where we can demonstrate the mighty work and power of the Holy Spirit to do something that can be seen nowhere else in the world. And in a world of conflict, a world that struggles to keep the peace, how the world needs this witness and experience of the church among them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful and glorious gospel brought to know you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we thank you too that we're brought to know one another. That you, the God who in, as Father, Son and Holy Spirit are in community. Bring us not just into community with you but in community with one another. United in Christ. We do pray please that you'd help us to take that extraordinarily seriously. To enjoy being united. And indeed to work out what it means to be united. We pray it so that uh, the gospel may be declared in the world and in the heavenly realms as we live it out. We pray it so that people would see just how great you are and that they would in turn be drawn to yourself and to this community. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.